0: Hear the word of the Lord. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. They came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Holy Father, you are are great and mighty and holy. Give us your words this morning by your Holy Spirit. Help us to cling fast to the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to see him clearly and truly. We need you, we need your words, and we need your power this morning. Help us, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. What is true greatness? That's uh, kind of been a perennial question throughout Throughout history, mankind always seems to be on the hunt and grasping for greatness in any form we can find it or get it or achieve it or buy it. What is true greatness? Think of men like Alexander the Great, Alfred the Great, uh, Pope Gregory, the great Charles, the great Charlemagne. Were these men actually great? What does greatness mean? I fear that many of us uh, this morning, if I asked you point blank, what is true greatness, that maybe you wouldn't have an answer, or even if you did, it would be insufficient. The problem is I think we often settle for insufficient greatness. We don't actually understand what true greatness is. And that's what our passage is about this morning is that we misunderstand, we settle for things that are lesser than greatness. Take uh, Gandalf, for example. If you guys uh, have read or seen Lord of the Rings, one of my favorite scenes is, is the first one in The Fellowship of the Rings. So Gandalf is coming into the Shire, uh, and there's all this grandeur and fanfare about it, and the hobbits uh, are in awe, and they're like, yes, it's Gandalf, he's here. Uh, and Gandalf is coming to, sell, uh, to, to be part of a uh, party, and part of this party is that Gandalf sets off these uh, incredible fireworks, uh, and it scares the hobbits, but they're in awe of it, and, and they, they think in that moment that they are in the presence of true greatness. They have seen something that they've never seen, it's bigger than them, and uh, it's far above their reach to do any sort of thing like this. The thing is, uh, if Gandalf, all, if all he had was fireworks, he wouldn't be great at all. Because the hobbits that were there, at least four of them, uh, went with Gandalf later uh, on on an actual adventure, and when they saw Gandalf stand, hold his ground in the face of Balrog, the ancient demon, and say, you shall not pass, and give his life to make sure that that statement was true, they actually saw what true greatness is. So at first they were settling for fireworks, when later they saw what true greatness truly, truly is. So what is it then that makes men like Alexander, or Alfred, or Gregory, or Charles, great? Or what would make you great, is the question. And the thing is, our our passage this morning isn't going to let you settle for anything less than actual true greatness. So what is true greatness? The passage this morning is gonna say that true greatness is true humility, and true greatness is true glory. True greatness is true humility. And true greatness is true glory. But before we get in directly into this second half of chapter 8 that we're at, because we're kind of taking highlights through Acts, there's, there's a couple of contextual things that, that we're going to miss if we don't touch on them. So last week, Craig preached on the formation of the, the first uh, deacons, the first diaconate, and then the stoning, the first martyr of the Christian church in Stephen. Uh, what happens after that event is that the Christians scatter. Uh, the church experiences persecution and they, they go. They, go to, they, they spread from that place where they were getting killed, uh, which makes sense. And right after that, at the beginning of chapter 8, we come to this man named Philip, who's also one of those deacons who was installed uh, earlier. Um, And so what he does, he goes to Samaria. And in Samaria, he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's performing miracles and all these things. And people believe it in droves. They're coming to him and getting baptized. And among these people, there's a man named Simon the Magician. He calls himself great in this area. He calls himself great. And people say he has the power of God. But what happens? So it even says he he believes and he gets baptized just with everyone else. And it says he follows Philip. For a little bit, but as soon as this event needs to be authenticated, just like it was at Pentecost, now, like Jesus said in Acts one eight, that the gospel is going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. This is the next step to Samaria, where the gospel is going. So it needs another authentic, uh, uh, authenticating event, like at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came and manifested Himself among the people. This has to happen again here to authenticate that next step outward, as Jesus prophesied it would. And so uh, Peter and John have to come, lay their hands on these people, give them the Holy Spirit to authenticate what is happening. As soon as the Spirit manifests in this way, in a miraculous way, Simon the the magician says, I want that power. Can I buy it from you? Can I buy God from you? Can I buy the Holy Spirit? Proving that his belief and his, his baptism is actually insincere. And it's, Important to cover all this context, because what we're going to see is in chapter 8, Luke, the author of Acts, is, is going to be comparing and tr- contrasting Simon the magician to the Ethiopian eunuch. We're going to see this contrast happen throughout the passage. And in that, he's going to be answering the question of what is true greatness? And as we come to the first part of that, uh, the answer to that question, look at verses 26 through 35 with me. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So, this is where we're going to see that true greatness is true humility. So, the Lord tells Philip uh, to go on a desert road leading to Gaza, and he does. And he he comes across this Ethiopian eunuch reading Isaiah. There's a couple of important details that we might overlook about the eunuch. First, eunuchs serve uh, in royal courts. That's what they did. And and, uh, being made a eunuch is to castrate someone to make sure that they cannot have uh, any children. The reason for this is that there would be no temptation from that point on for that eunuch to uh, create a coup in the royal court to take over power and then have progeny of his own, a legacy of his own. They took away his temptation to overthrow the the royal court. So that's why he's a eunuch. But because of that, he was serving in the royal courts. He was high. He was powerful. He was over all the wealth of Queen Candace of Ethiopia. All of it. It says all of her wealth. So this man was both powerful and powerful. Extremely wealthy, so that 's an important detail. The second and really important detail is that in Deuteronomy the law says that eunuchs cannot participate in the congregation of God. they can worship God, they can love God, but they cannot join the congregation of God and this passage says that this eunuch is coming down from Jerusalem from worshiping God, so we know that he's a God-fearer. Uh, he 's a god fearer he he believes in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But in within that sphere, he is on the complete fringes. He is on as far to the outside as you can be uh, in, the, in those people because he was not allowed in the congregation of God. So we have these two important details that he is powerful and wealthy in Ethiopia and among the counted among the lowest among the people of God. Which I think, Allows us to understand what his answer is to the next question because Philip says, Do you understand what you're reading when he's reading Isaiah? The eunuch at this point had two options. He could have said, Don't you know who I am? How dare you belittle me by asking me such a question? I'm in charge of all the treasury of Queen Candace, and you think I don't know what I'm reading? But I think he was taught. By the law of Israel, like we all ought to be, uh, as being on the fringes of the worshiping people in Israel, he was taught that his status in the world means actually nothing. And so his answer to the question is, no, I I don't, and I need help. I need help. And so Philip explains the gospel of Jesus Christ, beginning with this passage, uh, and, and explains to him who Jesus is and what he's done. And we know from the rest of the passage, the eunuch gets baptized. We know that the eunuch believed. But now let's compare the eunuch to Simon. Because here, Simon, again, who's called great, he calls himself great, because we see greatness being defined in two different ways in, this, in chapter 8 already. Simon wanted worldly greatness, and that's pretty obvious. Because as soon as he saw a power, the power of God, that could allow him to have more renown, uh, more power, more followers, probably more wealth. He said, well, I, I want God as a means to the end of my own glory, of my own greatness. The eunuch, on the other hand, says, I have everything you could want. I'm in one of the highest positions in a royal court. I'm over all the treasure of an actual queen of a nation. And when he's confronted with the gospel, he says, I have nothing to offer for this, but I need it. So Simon defines true greatness as worldly greatness, greatness in the eyes of the world. He's settling for greatness that is false, it's an imitation. And in doing that, he misses out on the true greatness that's right before his nose, right under his nose, right before his eyes, that he sees and witnesses the manifestation of the spirit. And he says, that's just a means to the end of my own greatness. But then we've got to take a, another step. What, how is true greatness true Humility. Because we see that the eunuch is acting in humility to his answer. But then to take it a step further, he's reading the passage in Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant, about Jesus Christ, who died, who, like a lamb before its sheer, is silent, and who opens not his mouth, and in his humiliation justice was denied him. He's reading about true, true greatness, the truest Greatest greatness, the greatest greatness is Jesus Christ. And that's what he's reading in this passage. He's reading about the only man in the world who's actually truly great. But you think he might be able to identify a little bit with him because he's, he thinks, I just went to worship God in Israel, and there's probably a little bit of humiliation of being a eunuch, of being on the outside of of the inside of the people. And in his humility, he was able to identify with the actual humble Christ, humiliated Christ, and was brought into him in belief. So here we see that humility purchases the gospel. Christ's humility purchases the gospel, but also humility receives the gospel. That the eunuch's humility receives the gospel. But that's not all. Humility lives the gospel. Because this has to mean something for our lives. When we walk out of here this morning, I ask you not to harden your hearts when you're confronted by the humble gospel because at one point, your humility, recognizing Christ's humility in faith brought you in to the gospel. But now, when you wake up every morning, it is easy to forget the weight of Christ's humility. It's easy to forget what it means to live as a humble gospel believer. So don't harden your hearts to this. Don't leave here thinking that you have anything to offer for the gospel at all, for the true greatness of Christ himself. You have nothing. But what does it look like? It means dying to self It means humility. It means repentance. Humility is hard and it's tough. And I don't actually know specifically what's going to cut to the heart for you, but whatever you're picturing right now, the thing you don't want to do, that you know is the humble way for you today, walking out of here and tomorrow, that's what you need to do. That's the way of humility. That's the hard way. Then also in this, I wanna address a, a potential objection uh, that may be in some of your minds. The implicit in this whole passage so far is that you are actually supposed to be chasing true greatness. And there's, a, there, there's kind of a, a mindset sometimes in, in reformed Christianity where it's just such a worm as I kind of thing, where it's we're always lowly, we're always beat down, we're always hard on ourselves, we're always uh, whipping ourselves for being wicked. That's not what I'm talking about here, because you are supposed to be truly great, and you're supposed to, to, to grasp at true greatness, not false greatness, but true greatness. And what I want to say is greatness is a holy ambition, if you understand what true greatness is in Jesus Christ. The thing is, you can't buy it, you can't achieve it, you can't earn it. Simon thought so little of the greatness of God, he thought he could buy it. And he was, he was half right. The gospel and God can be bought, but not by you. What this passage in Isaiah 53 is showing is that only God can buy God. Jesus Christ, who's, who took, who's wounded and striped for your healing, actually bought God for you. That's what happened. So don't think so little of God that you you think maybe the gospel is transactional in some sort of way, or that you can earn or achieve or offer God anything that he might give you something in return. All we can do is come to Christ and empty-handedly say, I have nothing, Christ is all. That's all we have. And so true greatness is true humility. That's what we've seen so far with the eunuch. But that's not all there is to true greatness. There's more. There's a a second part of the answer to what is true greatness. And look at verses 36 through 40 with me to see the second part of the answer. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So again, here we're going to see that true greatness is true glory. True greatness is true glory. And one of the th- things that stands out this the end, uh, second half of this passage here, we're looking at this morning, is, is that we see what happens when uh, the eunuch believes. He gets baptized. This whole, this whole part is uh, couched in the baptism of the eunuch. Um, and so we know he's returning from uh, Jerusalem, worshiping counted as being on the fringes of the people of God. And Israel says you actually are. The the law of Israel says you are on the outside. You are on the fringes. Christianity through baptism says you're one of us now. You are on the deepest inside. Baptism is the marker that we are now shoulder to shoulder with one another, face to face with Christ. We bear the same name, have the same position, And are all equal in Jesus Christ. This is deeply good news for the eunuch. Baptism says you are no longer on the fringes. You are the same as me. Philip is saying you now have the same mark I have. We are the same. And because of this, the humility of the eunuch thrusts him into glory. Because the name that he receives is the name of Christ. Christ. He receives the greatest and most glorious name on Earth, which is exceedingly more glorious than anything else we could achieve for ourselves. So he's thrust into glory because he was humble. And, and lest you think I'm exaggerating, there's a passage in Isaiah 56. merely sh- three short chapters after the, the passage that we know that the eunuch was reading. And it says Philip was explaining the gospel of him, starting with the passage of, uh, in Isaiah 53. And I have a hunch he ended up going to Isaiah 56 to explain to the eunuch something that pertained to him particularly. Isaiah 56 says this, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house And within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. If this isn't the most glorious of inheritances for the eunuch, we don't understand what glory is. He was given a name. He says... I will give them an everlasting name that shall, shall not be cut off. One of the interesting details about Acts chapter 8 is that we know who Simon the Magician is. He has a name. And he actually goes down in history after this, in church history, to be known as a, a heretic. And he leads many, many people astray. His name goes down in infamy. What's interesting is that the eunuch, we never even learn his name. What he is given is the name... Of Christ. It's a far greater name, far greater, far more glorious name than anything we could do. Secondly, we see that he's given monuments, the, the glory of, of eunuchs, and by extension, to us, to all who are in Christ have been given the glory of Christ to such an extent that we're worthy of monuments. That's glory. That's greatness. And then the last thing about about the eunuch is that we know that he was unable to create any sort of legacy for himself because he could not have children. What this passage says in Isaiah 56 is that he will give him a name that shall not be cut off. He's now been given something that he was unable to have with worldly... Standards With his worldly situation, he was not able to have a name that was cut off. My sons are going to be able to bear my name, Jamison, hopefully throughout history, for ages and ages to come. The eunuch did not have that opportunity. But in Christ, he's given a name that lasts and lasts and last and will far outlast my name and will far outlast yours. That's Glory. And compared it to Simon, again, who counted worldly greatness to be the greatest greatness. That was all he could see. He actually ended up losing it all. He lost his name. He lost his status. He lost his wealth. For the rest of his life, he was just essentially a heretic trying to lead people away from true greatness for his own fame, for his own renown. He lost any glory he could have had. And so what we've seen here is that in in Jesus Christ, there is deep, deep, rich, unfathomable Glory. Not only is he the suffering servant, but he's also the one who rose again to conquer death. He is the great serpent crusher. He is the one who is victorious and who conquers throughout all of history. And at the end of days all will be his. And that's actually the glory that the eunuch and youth in Christ have been brought into. And in, in Christ we see that his glory completes the gospel. He's not only the lowly crushed. Jesus, he's the victorious reigning Jesus, the glorious Jesus. Glory, his glory completes the gospel. And in him glory is bestowed on you by the gospel. Glory is bestowed by the gospel. And glory lives the gospel. Much like humility lives the gospel. We also must manifest the glory of Christ in our lives. We we must not go around just humble but also We've been given a magnanimity, if I use that word. Uh, we've been given a glory that far surpasses, right, like we've been saying anything we could accomplish on our own. We've been given a courage and a greatness, right? If, if Christ is for us, who can stand against us? Being able to stand up to your own temptations, the tides of culture that want to lead you astray in any myriad of ways, the, the ability to remain faithful in the face of friends who want you to abandon Christ, all of those things happen. To stand in those moments, you must be glorious. You must be bold, you must be courageous, you must know that you've been bestowed with the glory of Jesus Christ. And you have been. So what is true greatness? Here we've seen that true greatness is is true glory. We've seen that it's true humility and it's true glory. The men listed at the beginning, Alfred, Alexander, Gregory, Charles... Some of them, I think, actually were truly great in Jesus Christ. I think some of them actually found themselves to be in Jesus Christ and deserve the name of the great. I think some of them probably didn't. But we we must understand that there's a, a greatest greatness, a greater greatness. And it's Christ himself. He's both the most humble, and the most glorious. And as we try to live our lives out, because his greatness must be manifest in the lives of his people. So as we try to live it out in our humility, we understand our station. We understand where we've been placed in life, that he's creator, we are not. We sin, he's perfect. We have a, we have a station in life that we're given. That's humility. Therefore, it's okay to die to yourself. It's okay to repent. It's okay to be beaten up sometimes. Life will hurt. Yet, glory focuses on the name that you've been given, which is Christ, the most glorious name, which means that you've been given his authority and his power and his victory in the world. So you must also live in that. And there's a tension here because there's... The scriptures say, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. But then also, in the creation account, we see that humanity is the crown glory of creation. I don't necessarily have the perfect answer to deal with this tension, but it's something that we all must deal with. But we have to first start dealing with it by understanding that there is a true greatness, but the world, everything else, every temptation you will ever face is embedded with, with the lie that there is a greatness That is not Jesus Christ. Don't be tempted by that lie. Don't settle for false imitations of greatness. So I I pray that we may be people who have been brought in to the gospel through humility, knowing that the gospel has been purchased and accomplished through the humility of Christ, and that we may live in humility, but also recognizing that the gospel is completed by the glory of Christ. Glory is bestowed on us by the gospel and in Christ, and that glory also lives the gospel, it lives Christ in the world. That's what true greatness is. It's being brought into true greatness and then living true greatness. And may we be people who do that today, tomorrow, and to the end of our days. Let's pray.